If you're just joining us, this is Backstory, and we're talking today about the history of struggles within political parties. As we do with each of our shows, we've been soliciting your comments at BackstoryRadio.org and Facebook. And we got one of those commenters on the phone with us now, Marion from Harvey, Louisiana. Hey, Marion, welcome to the show. Thank you. I had a question based on looking on videos, because I grew up in Shreveport, uh, looking at videos of the sheriff's office as they rode a horse into what was my mother's church to break up a civil rights meeting, which was also a church service. And just the thought of the fact that we're used to thinking now, especially in Louisiana, that the Republicans are on one side and the Democrats on the other side. But in this particular case, these people were all probably Democrats. I also know something about Reconstruction. In Shreveport, the lieutenant governor, right after Reconstruction, was was African-American and was probably a Republican. (laughs) So I was wondering, when did blacks turn to the Democratic Party? Uh, Yeah, great question. Yeah, well, they start experimenting with it in the 1920s, but the real tidal wave comes during the Great Depression and during the administration of Franklin D. Roosevelt. I think it's 1936 is the first time that African Americans uh, vote uh, in a majority for the Democratic Party. Now, here's the thing. A lot of Southern, most Southern African Americans are not allowed to vote. They simply are not allowed even to register to vote. So when we say African Americans voting for the Democratic Party beginning in the New Deal, that's largely Northern African Americans because Southern African Americans, especially in the Deep South, are simply not allowed to vote. That sort of addresses one of my other questions because I felt like the African American Democrats here had no real power in Louisiana. So was there something they got out of the fact of being Democratic? <laughs> it would be some of those New Deal programs, wouldn't it, Brian? Yeah. So if you were an African American farmer, ultimately you would benefit from price supports for crops like tobacco, for instance, or in Louisiana, sugar. Now, here's the thing. African-Americans always got the short end of the stick, even within those programs. But they did get more than they had been getting from the federal government uh, in the first place. And in the spirit of Marion's question, what they got were acts from the federal government, not a role in governance itself. The Democrats were not going to let black people have an actual say in the running of the party. So this is very much unlike Reconstruction. This changes in the 1960s um, in the civil rights struggle when they say, listen, the main thing we have to have, we recognize the Democrats are our better friends, but now we must have actual representation in the Democratic Party. Marion, which is why that sheriff was riding his horse into the civil rights demonstration, uh, because the Democrats in the South didn't go along with their national party. Right. That was one of the things that was never talked about when I was growing up. We were protected from all of that. You know, the most I asked my mother, you know, what happened that day? Did she go to church? Did she see all of this? Because, of course, the, the police were beating the crowd, the, you know, they rode, they beat the minister nearly to death. And she said, well, I didn't go to church that day. And that is the most I ever got <laughs> out of her about what happened. We, we know this helps explain something else that's really important about all this. Why a church? 
It's because when African-Americans had no real voice in either political party, the African-American church became a unit of mobilization. That's why this, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the civil rights struggle comes out of the black church. It's because they had been precluded from being even a faction of a political party. And so they generated their own political energy, which is why Southern white Democrats would ride a horse into a church. But the real answer to your question doesn't come until that Voting Rights Act of 1965. It creates a voting revolution in the South. Uh, Given the opportunity to register and to vote, African Americans register in the millions, and they do vote, and they very quickly uh, are part of the government. They elect people to local office and eventually to Congress and to the U.S. Senate. And Mary, and then the irony, and I think this was then the, our own memory, is that as soon as that happens, then white Southerners say, we're out of this Democratic Party, <laughs> exactly. and now we're Republicans, right? Right. So what this shows is that every time African Americans have tried to use the American political system to gain some control over their own political lives, parties break in some ways in the very threat of African Americans having some kind of political power. Hey, Marion. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Thank you so much. We got another call, and it's from Sarah in Indianapolis. Sarah, welcome to Backstory. Hi, thank you. We're talking about parties. Uh, Join us. Let's party down. What you got? Uh, Well, I would love to hear your thoughts on the effects of party reforms in the 70s that opened up party processes to more women, young people, and minorities. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking particularly here about the McGovern Commission recommendations in the Democratic Party, Um, I assume that there were similar reforms that happened in the Republican Party a bit later, but it just seems interesting to me and a bit paradoxical um, that right at the moment that the Democratic Party itself is becoming more democratic with a small d, (laughs) the uh, Democrats as a group are finding it harder to further their policy goals. And I just wonder if a well-oiled party machine works more efficiently than a heterogeneous group of diverse folks. So I was just wondering what you guys think. Well, Sarah, thanks for that question. And we do paradox on backstory. And uh, I'm going to start with uh, Mr. 20th Century. What you got? Sarah is referring to the McGovern-Fraser reforms that changed the way the Democratic Party chose its candidates for office, starting with the president. Uh, The old way of doing it was to leave things up, for the most part, to party bosses. So, After the debacle of the 1968 convention where all hell broke loose outside the convention hall, the Democratic Party said, we're going to put together a commission that's going to change the way we choose candidates because it really doesn't reflect what our voters in the Democratic Party are thinking. And from 1972, when these reforms started on, the number of primaries that were used to select the Democratic candidate increased pretty much steadily. And I think you're absolutely on the mark here, Sarah, by reflecting a more diverse uh, group of voters. It became a lot harder to take what we could only call the party line. And the Democratic Party got what it wanted. (laughs) It got a lot of different perspectives, it was a lot harder to make the trains run on time. Hey, hey Brian, I got a question for you. I'm thinking about representation and the idea of the party being representative. It has to have uh, the demographic look of of, uh, its constituents. 
But when you open up a party the way the Democrats did, and then I think the way the Republicans have too, you're opening up the opportunity for the people who care the most, uh, who have the biggest agenda to push. Uh, so it's not at the end of the day that, for instance, the Republican Party right now is truly representative of all people who vote Republican. It's been dominated, taken over by highly motivated partisans or, or factious people. And Sarah, it seems that the paradox you're pointing toward is this great democratization leads to defeat, <laughs> that the Democrats, you know, shoot themselves in both feet or ever how many feet there are now, um, and as a result, hand the election to uh, Richard Nixon. Of all you know, people. That, yeah. But you also, I think, put your finger on an even more fundamental point, Sarah, and that is when decisions about candidates are handed over to what we know are a very small percentage of voters who turn out for primaries, you don't always get the most electable candidates in general elections. Right. I mean, thinking back to, to my original question with the McGovern Commission, and you see the type of, of candidate chosen by the people who are, have now increased participation in the party in George McGovern himself. And he's incredibly unelectable, right, for a variety of reasons. And yeah, if you can't get the person you want elected and, and you can't even do basic governing functions like pass the budget and sort of work across the aisle right. with each other, then... Right, you'd, yeah, rather, you'd rather lose. But I also, <laughs> I also think that this is the fundamental way in which parties change. Mm -hmm. A faction pushes a party to one extreme or another, perhaps, uh, and it loses the way the conservative faction uh, that nominated Barry Goldwater in 1964 did, the way the anti-Vietnam, more aggressive civil rights movement faction in 72 that supported McGovern did. And then the party reformulates around the middle. It's, it's part of the life cycle of parties. And, you know, sometimes these, fact these factions don't always lose. The same faction that got clobbered in supporting Barry Goldwater reconstituted itself and took over uh, the party under Ronald Reagan and, and had a pretty good ride. Right. And I mean, if you talk about the position of women and liberals and minorities and young people in the Democratic Party. Well, hello, look at the election of Barack Obama in 2008. So, yeah, that's great, a really great, great point. point. Yeah, thank mm -hmm. you guys so much. Thank you, Sarah. Bye-bye.